Father, thank you for your grace. So, where would we be? We would be just like all of the pagans of all of time, going the way of death with no hope. And Lord, we don't understand why and exactly who you, why you shed your grace on certain people. And that is a mystery that belongs to you. Yet we are humbled to think that you would shower grace upon us. It is great grace. So we thank you for that. Lord, be with the word today. May it go forth and transform us more into your image of your son. We thank you for each and every one that's here this this evening. Pray for our little ones down the hall as they learn to be worshipers. Pray for our student ministry as they learn to trust you. Know your word. We pray that you would bless every meeting in this building tonight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers 31 is our text. The judge of all the earth is right, is the title of it. And yet it's another one of those difficult passages. I told Gene, I said, I feel like I figure finish one chapter in Numbers and go, whew, that was, that was hard. That took a lot of work. And then I open up the next one and I go, oh no, here's another one. Uh, and this is a difficult one, and doubtlessly a chapter that presents many uh, or considerable moral challenges to people. This is the first time we come across the clear command to annihilate men, women, and children, given by God. And so it is a passage that has often been challenged. In fact, there are certain Jews, certain historians... They refer to this event event called a Midrash. It's it's an event that necessarily did not take place, but was taught for religious purposes. That's how they try to get around this. They say, there's no way God would eliminate all the Midianites because we see them again in Judges. And so they say, "That, that can't be true, so this couldn't have happened. They believe it's improvitable because how did Israel with such a small army, a thousand from each men, go and take on these tribes of Midianites and the Moabites and annihilate them? How would that be possible without losing a single man, according to verse 49? I think what they fail to understand is the Midianites were a very nomadic people. We know that as we studied uh, uh, Moses' father-in-law. We find them in various places all up and down the Transjordan Peninsula there. And one of the things that we begin to understand that there were some tribes, probably like the tribe from Jethro, this helps us understand a little bit, that were not caught up in the deception of Baal Peor, of the worship of Baal and the wickedness. But these tribes, and we'll see five kings to tell us, Probably five different tribes were caught up in the worship of Baal, which brought in a tremendous amount of immorality. It is these tribes that are annihilated here. Moab had joined forces with the Midian tribes, brought Balaam in in order to curse this group. 
But in the middle of it, we begin to realize there's much more than just worship of Baal and a fear of this nation of Israel. They were consumed with the immorality that came with Baal worship. And in chapter 25, you remember this, it spills over. They, they seduce Israel into immoral behavior. It becomes rampant. Phineas uh, uh, goes and has to kill uh, a couple in a, in a moral act and God sends a plague upon the nations and thousands of them die. So this is, um, that's the scene here. <laughs> and so I think it is a historical act. I think it's just like the Bible says it is. Why would we believe anything different as Bible teaching and Bible believing church? And I think it shows what God does when it comes to the protection of his people and his reaction to sin. The wages of sin is always death, isn't it? And so we see that here. So this is an account of God pouring out his wrath on a group of people that were clearly brought underneath his judgment. Give, people given over to their flesh now brought underneath his judgment. And it's not the end of the race of the Midianites. We know that. And nor is it the end of the race of the Moabites because there's another girl coming out of there that's very important, isn't she? Anybody know her name? Ruth. She's in the line of the Messiah. So when it says that they're sent to wipe out the Midianites, it does not mean they took every one of them out. It took these, this group that opposed Israel, that were caught up in the worship of Baal Peor, and those were the ones that God destroyed here. As far as Israel was concerned, um, and that they did not lose even one man, according to verse 49, that's certainly just the power of God. And it's not the first time or the last time he's going to do that. He sent Abraham in, lost no one. We'll see uh, uh, time again uh, where the nation of Israel goes in as they take captive nations and wipe nations out in the land of Canaan that they don't lose anyone. It's God going ahead of them. And so those people who don't like these lopsided defeats, they reject God. And they reject the power of God to do something so supernatural, so grandiose that he can protect those Probably one of my favorite stories when it comes along that line is a story in 1 Samuel 14 when Jonathan and his sword bearer are across a, a canyon and they look across and they see a garrison of the Philistines and they ask God, you know, let's go over there. If they say, if we say out there, hey, you know, we're coming over and they say, come on over, that means God's going to give them their hand. Really? That's what that means? Yeah. To him it did and he believed that that's what God was telling him and he goes over there, him and his sword, sword, sword bearer and about an acre of a land wipe out this whole garrison. And we see God do these things. And so, again, there's just a constant threat. Threat's not a good word. Constant attack against God's word because people do not believe in the power of God. Now, it's also important to realize that God was going to give the nation of Israel a great deal of blessing from this defeat. He's going to give them a great deal of livestock. Now, they need this. They're coming out of the wilderness after 40 years, and they've been given the law, and they're going to be sacrificing and offering worship to God, and they need bulls and rams and lambs and, and pigeons and all this stuff. They also need land to graze this on, and he's going to give them land in this great, uh, great battle here and possessions. 
He's going to give them gold and silver that's going to come to the temple. All of this is going to create um, a great provision for the needs of Israel through this. And eventually, we'll see here, two and a half of the tribes of Israel settle in this land they're about ready to take. Now, a great part of the chapter concerns itself with what we would say the aftermath of the battle. It's God's divine provision for that. And, he, and he's going to give to the tabernacle and priest needs and all of that. We'll see that. But there are some sensitive things in here that are hard at first to look at. But we'll look at them and try to figure them out according to the scriptures and what we know about God. Number one, God declares war in the enemies of his people. Look at these first 13 verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take full vengeance on the sons of, for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards, you will be gathered to your people. So he's talking to Moses here. Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among, uh, from among you for the, for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe, from all the tribes of Israel, you shall send to war. So there, so there were furnished from the thousands of Israel, a, thousands of, a thousand of each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Moses sent them. A thousand from each tribe to war. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, to war with them in the holy vessels and the trumpets for the, ar- uh, for the alarm in his hand. So they made war with Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. And they killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of their slain. Evi and... Re- Re- I didn't pronounce... I didn't work on these guys. Uh, Remkim, Zur, and Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. And the sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones and all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods they plundered. And then they burned all their cities where they lived and all their camps with fire. And they took all the spoils and all the prey, both man and of beast. And they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and Eliezer the priest and to the congregation of the sons of Israel to the camp at the plain of Moab, which was by the Jordan opposite of Jericho. Moses and Eliezer and all of the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. Well, immediately there are several things that we need to note here as we come into this, this text. This first major campaign of war that they're sent in. Remember the other ones with Sion and Og that they got into? They were attacked. This is the first one that they're sent in. And that's important because in verse 2, we see that God sends them, particularly 2 and 3. This is God's campaign against Midian. It's also noticed that it is Moses' last and only war that he's going to see before he dies. Look at verse 2 with me. Notice it says, take full vengeance on the son, uh, for the sons of Israel on the Midianites after you will be gathered to your people. And so Moses, after this battle, he will finish writing this inspired instructions, mostly found in Deuteronomy from this point forward. He will not see them come across Jordan. He will not see them defeat Jericho. He will not see the recovery of uh, a, a woman like Rahab who will uh, be part of the seed of the Messiah. But God says after this, he would be gathered to his people. That's an Old Testament language that Moses was going to die. Verse 3, notice that this campaign is called the Lord's vengeance on the Midians. That's called Israel's vengeance. 
The Bible never tells man to have vengeance, does he? Vengeance is whose? And this is a great text. This is, helps us understand. True vengeance comes from God because only God is holy and only God could avenge without sin. He does everything perfectly. So it's very important to note that this is Lord's vengeance on Midian. And this is because it is true punishment on the Midianites for trying, attempting, and successful in some cases to seduce Israel into false worship using Baal and immorality and all that came with it that we saw in chapter 25. Now you think about this. This, it's always described in relationships, isn't it? Here's a nation seducing, using their women, and this is going to be important as we study this, their women to seduce the men of Israel into the worship of Baal. In many cases, that's what we would call adultery. And all through the Old Testament, and Old Testament law, and in many of the nations around them, adultery was, uh, you were liable, you were, the result of adultery was execution. And so even in the time, this certainly would have fit. Even in the pagan world, adultery was looked at as something completely wrong. And here was a whole nation adultering against another and particularly against the God of the nation. And so this was inappropriate, not only from the commands of God, but even in many of the nations around them. Notice in verse 4 and 5 that this is a relatively small army. (laughs) This is not what we'll see later. This is 12,000 men. These are uh, a small number. And it's interesting that God takes such a small number to devastate these Midianite tribes, these tribes that are used to war. They're used to moving around. They're used to probably guerrilla warfare type things. And notice that there's many tribes here. There's at least five because we see the kings named in verse 8, which tells us that this isn't just one group. This is many who had gathered together, let alone they gathered with Moab. And Moab's king had hired Balaam. And there he let them see the nation of Israel, Balaam see the nation of Israel, why they peeked around the idols that are up on the hill to Baal. To Baal. So you can just see this is a group. This is a massive group of pagan, immoral, godless people given over to their own flesh groups here. Now, there's several reasons, I think, for the small number. Why doesn't God send them out? We know they're, they're back to two to four million people, right? We've seen the numbers. We're in the book of Numbers, right? We've counted, we see the count of them. So why does he do that? Well, I think, number one, he doesn't want them to trust in themselves. He does this often, right? Anybody else remember a story that he thins about the herd? Gideon, right? And he often does this. He, he, he wants his people to understand, I don't need you. <laughs> I can do this on my own, but I want you to participate with me so you worship me and you understand that I am your God, I'm your Father, I take care of you. And so he doesn't send the whole million men out. He sends 12,000. Well, second, this was a nation most likely probably unequipped for this kind of war. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Yeah, they may have picked up a few things after they beat um, Sion and Og, and they probably got some of, of the weapons from them. They, you know, when you're walking around the desert, you don't want to be, you know, pulling a, you know, a big, you know, thrower thing and stuff. <laughs> you're pretty light, right? You may have a spear to walk with, but they're not... 
very well equipped. And third, it would allow each tribe, I think this is fascinating, give a thousand men from each tribe. It wasn't just the tough guys from Benjamin, you know, and, and uh, Naphtali is really, you know, mean guys. This is somebody from every tribe. And I think in this initial war, God wants the nation to witness this, that this was someone from all the people, all gathering under the, under the headship of God, leading them out in this, and so they would all participate in what God was doing. I think he's studying a view of what's going to happen once they cross that Jordan. Now notice in verse 6, look at this. Notice Phineas um, is sent out to war with them. And he has these holy vessels and trumpets in his hand, right? And you remember Phineas, he's the hero of chapter 25, right? He, he saw the absolute wickedness, immorality of the worship that was going on at Baal Peor. He, he, seems, he seems to be greatly offended for the case of God, doesn't he? And he's the one that takes a spear and runs it through the two that are in an immoral act. And here he is. And you'll see him over and over as we watch Israel go through this, go through the promised land. He's out with them very, very often. Now, all of this tells you that this is somewhat of a holy war. And that means that it's holy because God now is going to pour out unique judgment over a people he's given over to depravity. And it can't be overstated that Midian is really an enemy of God. And I know that's hard because people tell you all the time, oh, we're all God's people. No, we're not. That's not true when you hear that. We're not all, we're created all in his image. We're all image bearers. Thus we protect life and so forth. But we're not all God's people. We see that clearly demonstrated throughout the Bible. If we were to teach that and someone dies and goes to hell and stands before the judgment seat of God someday and says, I thought I was your child. Well, who told you that? The Bible doesn't tell you that. There are people that God wars against. We see that. And and we see it in the New Testament just as well. Romans 1 is a clear depiction of God giving over people to their own flesh. And when we come to a chapter like Numbers chapter 31, here we find a very clear group steeped in immorality completely taught from the eldest to the youngest to reject the living God and worship this God and do it in an immoral way. Now, this this enemy of God used their sexual seduction to try to tempt away God's people. And that fairly, I think you can say, ticked him off. And, and, and though Israel is cer- certainly responsible for their sin, and remember, a plague went, through, plague went through and many thousands died and so forth, so we're not excusing their sin in any way, but God is protective of his people. And there's one thing he's extremely protective is his line of Christ that's in this nation. And he does not want that polluted. That's going to be the one who's going to save all those who by faith would put their trust in God, Old Testament. His blood would wash back on them and his blood of Christ would wash forward on us that put our faith in Christ alone. And so he's very protective of that. And any threat to God's people was a threat to the seed of Christ. And so God takes this very serious. Back to verse 6. Again, look at that. 
Notice Eliezer, the high priest, um, would not have gone out to war. There's probably reasons for that. He would not want to contract any uncleanliness from the dead there. He's the one now standing between God and the nation. Moses is no longer allowed into the holy place and in that role any longer. Now it is uh, Eliezer. But instead he sends his son Phinehas, who's already proven himself to be a man of God. And notice that he has holy vessels with him and a trumpet, right? Uh, it doesn't tell us what those are. Um, later, we see them going with the Ark of Covenant. It could be that. It doesn't tell us. could be the uh, priestly garments that he wore. Um, we're not sure. But whatever he did, he was representing God. The trumpets were always used to call to worship it's up to this point. Now these trumpets are used for an alarm for war. And, and I, I got thinking about this. If you're Jericho and you're on the other side of, Jer- of the Jordan River... And there's this nation that, that the rumors keep growing how big they are. They've already wiped out uh, Sidon and Og. And now they're forming for battles with the Midianites and the Moabites. Don't you know they were watching? They're fools if they don't. In fact, when we get to that story, you're going to see they knew who was coming. They had the, bat- the, hatch- the hatches battened, didn't they? And then they hear these trumpets blow. <laughs> and I thought about this day, today when I was finishing this up. I thought, man, when they first heard those trumpets blow, man, that must have sent a chill up and down their spine. And here the nation is taught to bring these trumpets. In a sense, the trumpet always represents God is coming. He's either coming to the tabernacle, his glory is going to be here, let's worship him, or in many cases in war, or when he returns, our Lord and Savior, he's coming. And his robes are dipped in blood. (laughs) And he's ready for battle. And I think that's fascinating, that these trumpets are here. Look at verses 7 and 8. Here we see what I would say is the outcome of pretty good obedience, (laughs) The nation had their faith put to test here. Were they going to obey the commands of God? And they seem to have done that. Notice they annihilated the male population. Nothing's told about the war here in particular. And often that those details are not given in the Bible. But we see the results of them here. In the entire male population of the Midianite tribes that were in that war, at least these five known that we see here in this list, are all dead. The list of the Midianite kings is clear that there was a historical record here. And the four kings, you notice in in those verses there, are unknown. But there's one we do know. His name is Zur. Now, isn't that interesting? Anybody remember who he is? His daughter was the one Phineas ran the sword, the spear through, who was engaged in the immoral act. Now, this helps you understand how deeply this runs in this this nation. This was a nation given over to absolute pagan all the way down to the core of the king's daughter. It helps you see the seriousness of what God does here. You can read again that in chapter 25 verse 15 and you'll find Cosby, the daughter, dead in the tent from Phineas. Sadly, notice who was found among the dead also there at the end of verse 8 is Balaam. 
Balaam, Balaam was an evil, evil man. He seemed to delight in the immorality of the kings of the Midianites and the Moabites. He was a false prophet. And the Bible says he was killed by the sword. It's an awful way to die, I would imagine. But it's the way most of these men died. He was run through or his head was cut off or whatever happened here. He died that way. He had thrown his lot in with the wicked, hadn't he? And I think what's so interesting, even though repeatedly the Bible told us that he said, I cannot prophesy against the word of God. And yet, he knew that he could not even speak a curse against God's people. And yet his heart was so wicked, he devised another way to try to destroy the nation of Israel by having the Midianites try to tempt them, seduce them into the sexual worship around the false god Baal. And so you begin to realize it was not Balaam who could not speak the word, uh, speak curses against Israel. It was the spirit of God coming upon an evil person for a moment, for a little while, to stop him from doing what he really wanted to do. We see that with King Saul. We see that through the scriptures, don't we? The spirit of God protects his people. Verse 13, it clarifies that God would not allow war in the nation's camp. I think that's interesting. I think it's both for a sense of protection, a sense of purity in the camp with the children and so forth. And I think there's an understanding that it was God's campaign against the Midianites. Once war was done, you notice that Moses and the high priest, uh, Phineas's father, Eliezer, they come out to greet the warriors. They examine the treasure, the booty here. And, and they give instructions for these warriors and what they're supposed to do, meaning, all, all, all the while meaning Eliezer does not probably, I would imagine, come in contact with him. Second thought, the holiness of God and his divine will on who lives and who dies. This next section is probably the most difficult. Look at verse 14 through 18. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds, who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But all the girls who have not known a man intimately, spare for yourselves. Well, here we come to a quite challenging passage of Scripture. One, if someone who is a pagan or outside of Christ gets a hold of this, in today's culture, you know what they'll do to you. Man today can't ever get their mind around this in any way. And yet, this is our God speaking clearly through Moses. This is penned out, word of God, inspired every jot and tittle of it to tell us what God was doing. And it's absolutely overwhelming when you read it. 
In verses 14 and 15, these warriors have returned from battle. Moses is there to respond, to to meet them, but his response, as we see in verse 14 and 15, is anger. And it's anger at the sight of the women. That catches your attention, doesn't it? It's a similar response, I think, that Moses has, that Samuel will have later when he shows up and Saul was to kill King Agag and his other leaders and all of the livestock. And he says, what's that I hear bleating? He goes, oh, well, you know, you know we're going to offer it. Well, we're going to offer it for sacrifice. There's a lack of obedience there. So I think this is what Moses is angry about, right? He's angry, and notice he's angry towards the leaders. He's angry towards the leaders of the thousands and the hundreds. Your leaders, you heard what we told you, you heard what God said. Why hasn't this been executed properly? In verse 15, he questions, why are the women spared? In verse 16, he gives you the reason why they should be destroyed. See, Moses is reminding the warriors, these captains, that these women were to be blamed for the sin of Israel, they enticed the men into sexual immorality. And I think what's fascinating is as we go back to this standard that God has set, the blame does not just fall on one person. Today, if people get caught in a relationship that's immoral, or and I even use that word, immoral is even in the world's, dictionary anymore Um, but often it's the man's fault or it's the woman's fault or something like that isn't it interesting God places this very clearly on the women here and certainly the men because the plague came into it he calls sin sin and those who committed it are to be dealt with I thought that's fascinating today women can dress any way they want do almost anything to entice and are never guilty of that, it's the man's fault. And you watch that happen. Now, certainly, as men, we guard our eyes and we guard our minds and thoughts and we love the gospel. But for some reason today, that's, that's, not, that's, no, that's, that's man's fault. And I think that's interesting that he sees that the worship of Baal, particularly, and don't, don't miss this, Balaam's, Balaam's trick, Balaam's enticing, using these women because he couldn't get a curse on them. He used these women to try to destroy the nation of Israel. He knew their God. He knew their God was holy. And if I can get them to transgress against God, he'll wipe them out. And he did. Forty some odd thousand of them, I think. See, these events are, they're clear to Moses now. He knows what happened at Baal Peor. He saw the result of the plagues. He's not blaming just the women. He knows that. He knows that Israel responds to this, and that's why there was a great plague. But notice in verse 17, now you have male boys, and you have sexually experienced women that need to be killed, and that is is challenging, isn't it? Why does he do that? One, Moses is no longer afraid to obey God completely. He disobeyed him with the rod and the staff and the striking of the rock and, and it's cost him his life in the promised land, right? But he also know that God said, I'm taking my vision, vengeance on him. Wipe him out completely. 
if you leave males around, you're going to have children. And so he says, wipe them all out. Verse 18, you come to the sexually inexperienced women is the idea of the language there. They're women who haven't been with a man. They're deemed somewhat innocent here. And probably because they could prove that she never, this girl, never bowed the knee to Baal. And if you bowed the knee to Baal, you perform sexual acts. And so they are spared. We see a very similar action like this in Judges chapter 21. Remember the 400 virgins that belong to the tribe of Benjamin when God pours his wrath out and almost annihilates, annihilates the whole tribe of Benjamin. And look, when we get into this, sin is sin, right? We understand that. Sin is sin in the eyes of God. But it is clear, and it isn't hard to study the scripture, sexual sin carries a certain consequence that God seems to bring down on unrepentant people. He will forgive you if you repent. But when you don't, he brings heavy consequences to the sexual immoral people and I don't know about you I'm thankful for repentance I'm thankful that God forgives sins and it's good to know that isn't that it's good to understand that but it's also good to understand that God sees what's going on in our nation he is watching what this administration is allowing he has seen the movements across the globe with the sexual immoral movement. And he will act on it. And it will be swift judgment. It will be judgment like man has never seen. I think the, vir- the virgins in verse 18 are spared. And, and I think they're apparently allowed to be married. And possibly even incorporated into the nation of Israel. They're given to them. And that idea given it to them is in marriage. And so they were probably incorporated in or became children and raised in the nation of Israel. However, in these verses where the death of women and children take place, we often find the greatest attacks on the Bible and on God. I think there's several reasons. First, they don't understand that this was a holy war against God and God against them. God's holy. And if you ever want to meet the wrath of God, oppose his holiness. You will see his justice and wrath come out of him. That attribute will come front and center when you oppose a holy God. And this is what takes place here. See, the world creates a designer God, don't they? Just like they have a designer Jesus now. Oh, our God would never do this. Genesis chapter 6. What do you do with that? You don't think there was children on the earth? Eight people got on the boat. All others drowned. I mean, we have lesson after lesson as we go through this. When you oppose a holy God and you particularly oppose him in immorality and try to prostitute his people away, when they try to attack Christian schools for what we teach here, Attack the church for what we believe biblically about marriage. God is watching. 
and he will not let them get away with it. God is holy. And I think those who attack the Bible and God don't understand the holiness of God, otherwise they would never do it. This is the first of many battles where God is removing pagan nations from the promised land, including sparing very little life, even little ones. God was using, listen, God was using his people at this time as his rod of punishment against pagan nations that he had given over to their depravity. That rod came with righteous anger. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, way before the promised land, with only Abraham there still coming out of disbelief and finally believing in God as he looks at the stars that God was going to allow him to impregnate his wife and from them was going to come this great nation. Finally there, in the middle of all of that story, where he finally believes and is a credit to him for righteousness, and a few verses after that he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to destroy the Amalekites. Amorites. And we don't even know who they are at this point. (laughs) Very well. And you watch as the nation goes in, they are destroyed. So God keeps his promises. And we see that come to pass during the siege. Their sin is before God. We have to remember this. Their sin is before God. Just like in the days of Noah, there was no repentance, no turning from their sinful ways. Every intent of their thoughts of their heart was evil continually, and God knew their hearts, and he leveled them in his justice and righteousness. Same is true in Genesis 19. Do you think there was no children in Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you think that's just the bad people at the town square? Abraham, uh, Abraham looks back, excuse me, Lot looks back, and Abraham wakes up the next day and looks over the valley, and it looked like the smoldering of a furnace. Lot's wife doesn't even make it out. Destroying pagan men, women, and children is difficult. It, is, it doesn't matter whether they're pagan or not. It's hard on us. But time and time again, we see God destroy not only pagan people, but he destroys his own people. <laughs> Do you think the snakes only bit people 18 and above? It's like, you know, well, no, they weren't there. Yeah, I mean, the kids, they were already asleep. There's nothing in the text that tells us that. When, when even his own people, this is only just pagan men and women, children, but when, when people reject him as God and try to replace him, time and time again, even in his own people, he destroys men, women, and children. You don't think there was children eating on those quail that flew into camp who were struck by a plague while the meat was still in their teeth? See, you reject God. You reject him and and not put your faith in him and put your faith in anything else, what comes from that is eventually judgment. Thousands, man, I'm in Jeremiah on my personal reading right now, and it's, it's grieving in a way to read. How many are you there? I mean, if you're reading through the Bible, you're probably somewhere in those major prophets now. Jeremiah is telling them, look, you are going to die by the thousands You're going to eat each other's flesh. And this is after the Assyrians have already come out and wiped out the northern tribes. And who knows how many thousands of people died in those attacks. 
Nebuchadnezzar has wiped them out. And Jeremiah is telling him, don't fight him. Put your hands out. Cuff yourself. Go with him and live. And they don't. Because they worship themselves and not the living God. When it comes to the Midianites, sexual sin that was seducing of the nation of Israel was a threat against God and a threat against the line of the Messiah. And he met that threat with incredible displeasure. Down through Christendom, Christians have tried to explain away the death of women and children in the Bible. They say sometimes, they'll say, well, that was primitive times, right? They didn't know any better. And I think that's a, a, just a rejection of the inspired word of God. No, the Bible says this whole chapter chart starts out, take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on Midianite. Afterwards you will be gathered to people. And Moses spoke to the people, arm the men from among you for war that they may go against Midianite and execute the Lord's vengeance. You can't get around it. It's God doing it. And so those who try to, try to dismiss that, to try to make a kinder and gentler God, <laughs> are not preaching the God of the Bible. And oh, our God is God of love, isn't he? As Moses stood in the cleft of a rock, he reminded him that he is a loving God, <laughs> not accounting the sins to generation after generation. He, 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 he protects them. He's a loving, just God. And yet, if you pose him, you try to rob his people or take his people and deceive them, you will see his vengeance. It isn't hard to also see that they reject the holiness of God. And I think when you reject the holiness of God, you uncover a deep pride that you probably don't know is in there. And I think that's what happens to so many people. This pride and arrogance that they can't imagine that their God would let children die. As though their, their way that they think God should do something is greater than what God does. I mean, how many of us questions we want to ask God when you get there? Oh my goodness, get in line. Uh, maybe I'll know it when I get there, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of questions <laughs> that I don't know why he did it, how he did it, and when he did it, why that was his will. It still doesn't make sense to me. But I still bend the knee to him. And there's nothing wrong with saying, God, I don't understand. But I love you and I bend the knee to you because you are perfect in all of your ways. That's different than attacking the holiness of God or trying to change his character. And this is so important, isn't it? So many of you in this room, as I just look around, have suffered some tremendous losses. Loss of loved ones. Gone through illnesses. It is your love of your God and Father and your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that keeps you from straying when you don't know why He allowed it to happen. And, brothers and sisters, that's going to continue on until we die. And that's what faith is, right? That's, that's brothers and sisters. That's, that's the body of Christ saying, God, we don't understand and we weep before you and we need your help and, and we're hurting and we don't understand but we will not deny you because you're God. And we are your children saved by your grace. 
this long arm of God and his disciplining hand and his punishing hand is not just left in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. And probably no chapter capitalizes it better than Romans 13. You want to sin? I'll send the government after you. <laughs> I'll send the long arm of the, law, of the law after you, and it's actually my arm. God has no problem sending the sword. He's done that many times. And we still see it today. When you think about the sin with even in the church, we see God act swiftly. I don't think it's just an Old Testament deal. Want to maybe have a conversation with Ananias and Sapphira? How'd that go, lying to the Holy Spirit? How about those in the church in Corinthians who mishandled the gospel through mishandling of the Lord's table? Many of them sleep. They're dead. How about John 5? A sin, there's a sin that's not leading to death, but there is a sin that does lead to death. See, God still will bring his arm of punishment out. But then, but then in his loving kindness, and this is what we get our mind around, sometimes he takes people home and we don't understand why he does it. But we, we, we get to this point where we say, oh God, I know you love me. I know you seek the best for me. And so you, what you chose to do was in my best interest, even though I cannot see it, because I know you always act in your perfection. And you learn to pray that, don't you, brothers and sisters, those heavy-hearted ones in this room. And you find comfort when you put your trust in God. And when you don't, you feel miserable. And you hurt. But the moment you run into your father's lap and say, I do trust you, God. I don't know why you did it, but I trust you. You will once again find the comfort that only God can give. See, I think Moses knew that God was holy in such a way... <laughs> He, he had come against the holiness of God. He tried to rob him of that glory, and it cost him his life, doesn't it? And I think Moses knew there was no such innocent person on the earth. I think he understood depravity. And I think he understood if God says to do something, no matter what the age group, what the sex of the people is, do it. And he carried out hard things. Because he knew that he had failed God. He had tried to rob God of his glory. He tried to do things his way, and it cost him dearly. Instead, he just gets a look into the promised land and never gets to see it. See, there's a real good point here, brother and sister. God is immutable. He does not change. He does not need to change. Thus, he does not change. We, on the other hand, are always changing, particularly as believers. We are changing into the image of God because we need to be changing. <laughs> we have been changed um, in our position. We're forever saved, an unmovable change in our justification and our initial sanctification. But we're progressing now in the image of Christ, and so we're always changing. But we live underneath the, the shadow of the wing, under the arm, the right hand of a God who does not need to change. And so we find great confidence in this. Look at Psalms 137. This psalm, oh my goodness. I'm trying to work my way through this carefully. I've heard this taught 
very insensitive. There's no way to read Numbers 31 and say those are children, those are little boys, that's women. And there was no, you know, tie a blindfold on their eyes, put a cigarette in their mouth and, you know, shoot them and they never feel anything. This is death by sword. This is bloody. This is rough. But those who understood the holiness of God and could grasp the sovereignty of God, like the psalmist we're going to read here, we unknown psalmist here, but doubtlessly someone who experienced the wrath of God on the nation of Israel and went to captivity, understands this. And even though it was difficult, they understood it. And then they knew what they had went through. They wanted to see God do to their enemies. And this chapter is a difficult one because this is somebody inspired by God, uh, an unknown writer, could it's someone who got taken into captivity writes what we're going to read. Listen to this. Psalms 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there were our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the song, the Lord's song, in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Razit, Razit. And to its foundation. Now listen to this. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you. With a recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. <laughs> I read that today. I mean, your first thought is, how do you explain that to an unbeliever? <laughs> See, whoever this is, is inspired by God who knows God's justice. He knows that God will completely wipe out, annihilate all those, young and old, who oppose him. And instead of singing, which was just entertainment for them, they looked at their enemies and said, God, one day... You will devastate them like you devastated us because of sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what Romans tells us. But for the believer, it doesn't end there. But the gift of God, right? So we don't, we don't, we don't look forward to this type of death. We, we, look, we look forward to grace all the time. That's where we find our hearts. I was reading a, Commentary by J.B. Phillips on this particular passage. And I never have read this before, but he introduced a comment by C.S. Lewis here. He's trying to help us get our mind around why God would take out little ones, okay? So C.S. Lewis, in a, what his, he had a writing called the reflection in the Psalms. And, and, and a phrase that I don't really care for, but he, he said in the second meaning... I don't know if anybody ever read this. You've seen, I, I thought maybe, Jonathan, you'd read it. Well, here, 
Lewis is trying to get his mind around why God would take out little ones of these evil countries, of these pagan regimes like the Baal worshipers. Here's what Lewis writes. I think this is really good, very helpful. God knows the things of the inner world which are like babies. Infantile beginnings of small indulgences, small resentments, which may one day become a settled hatred, but which woo us and needle us with special pleadings and which seem so tiny, so helpless, that in resisting them, we feel we are being cruel to animals. Lewis goes on a little bit later to say this, kill them, show them no mercy, for they will grow and render you and perhaps destroy you. And now we begin to see what God was doing with the Midianite children. They're just like that sin within our lives. Oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. But it's not a big deal. Everybody else does it. Those little, little things that only you and God know about. They grow up and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they destroy homes and marriages. They destroy finances. They destroy the gifts that God has given you. And so Lewis looked at a passage like this and he said, when we step back and realize that those things that are not of God need to be destroyed, you can understand this. And so we as humans, non-judge of the world, look at this and it's hard, but when we break it down into that, we begin to realize, oh, those ones would have grown up and repeated the sins of their parents and so forth. And only a sovereign God, only a God who knows all that is allowed to command those things. We are not. Three, I, I just got to hurry in these last two thoughts. Remember the shadow of death will always be cast in this life. 19 through 21, back in Numbers 31, men have returned. They have all the spoils in hand. The death of these women and children has now taken place. And he turns to the camp. And you, you, out camp outside here, he tells these men, seven days, whoever has killed a person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourself, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day, and you shall purify yourself, every garment and every article of leather and all the work of the goat's hair and all the articles of wood. Then Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who have gone out to battle, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold and silver and bronze and iron and the tin and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean, but it shall be purified with water by, for impurities. But whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water and you shall wash your clothes and on the seventh day be clean and afterwards you may enter the camp. Though the war with the Midianites was a holy war, it's clear that 
the priest come out, particularly Eliezer and then Moses as well, and the warriors are deemed unclean. They're kept from entering the camp. You see that. They need to be purified. The water is probably um, representative, represented in number 19, there where the red heifer is burned and the ashes are put in that water. That's a purifying water. They're to bathe themselves on the third day and the seventh day. The treasure that they've brought back is to be purified. If it's metal, it goes through fire and then washed by water. All other items are washed by water. You see that. And then in chap- in, in, if you drop down in verses 50 and 52, these golden objects will be made atonement for them um, and given to the priest uh, for the temple. But what, this, what I'm after here is this reminds us that all loss of human life, whether natural, willful, accidental, carried out by a divine command, needs to be atoned for. And it's either atoned by something else, right? So they were to, there was an atonement, these gifts were given for atonement for them to the priest, or you atone your own death. And that shadow of death will always be cast in this life. And, and, and you and I know that. You know, Saturday we're going to say our goodbyes to Marie, you know. And that's going to be a precious day. I look forward to it. I've been working on that already. But she's a reminder. This, this is what comes upon man. The wages of sin is death. But Marie had the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, and she has the gift of life, and she's alive forever. But the way of the shadow of death is not far from us. And so this reminds us, as they have to go through this ritual and do all these things, it is because of death. And that came about when Adam and Eve rejected God in the garden, and death followed them. The last section, 25 through 54, is the reward of the good fight. It's interesting. It took faith to believe God. Hey, you're only going out a thousand from each tribe. Go out there. These men have faith. They went out. You can read the rest of this on your own. But really what's in here is the regulations of how to deal with the treasure that comes back from these wars. You can notice if you read on there, half of it goes to these 12,000 men. But the other half went to the entire congregation. And God's helping them understand, look, you went to war, but you don't go on your own. There's people back here, and they are going to be rewarded as well. And I thought that was a good reminder that God remembers the hidden worker. He rewards all of his faithful workers. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your works and the love which you have shown in his name and ministering and ministering to the saints. So I I like that. I think that's really cool in this text. You can read it. It's all divided among the people except for the gold and silver and other things that go to the temple there. 48 through 49, the role of the warrior was called out. I think that's fascinating. They went down the line of the names of the warriors went out and the Bible says not one was missing. That's pretty cool. I have that marked in my Bible. That only God could do that. Take a really unprepared nation, men that have been wandering around in the wilderness, children of parents who had died because of disobedience, and they go out and fight a battle, and not one of them is lost. And look, this is not, this is not usual, right? They had lost a lot of people. They'd seen death, but these, they were obeying God, and they came back alive. 50 through 52, the warriors received more um, because of what they had, that half was given to the 12,000 warriors, but they gave a portion 
to the priest. So the first thing they do with the booty or the treasure they receive is they give a portion to the priest to give back to God. And so you see them cheerfully honoring God. And this is the first of many battles. And this is a young nation getting ready to go fight. And now they have a, a piece of property. They have a land across, from the, across the river from Jericho. Now they're going to be able to stage there. Moses is going to write his last sermons and, and the last of the law and, 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 and adding to the law that was given to more clarification. He's going to finish that. He's going to die. And, and then um, Joshua's going to take them across the river and they're going to go on into the nation, into their new nation. So, uh, fascinating trail here. But, but challenging passage. You okay with that? I know that's hard. I, I know it's hard to think that God would order that. But God knows the heart of every person. And he ordered the skies to open. And he ordered the, the depths of the earth to open. He swallowed up full families of nation of Israel and Korah. He knows whose are his. And he's perfect in all that he does. Father, thank you for Numbers chapter 31. We, we as Americans who live in a place that strives to be so politically correct, they're so wrong now. We can't even imagine this on the daily news. This would be just absolute war crimes and terrible things and certainly they are Lord and yet Lord we see your name on this we see this is your vengeance and so though we can't quite get our mind around it even as humans who love life and do everything we can to protect ours and other people's we do understand that you make no mistakes and Lord you see where the smallest evil things will grow up to destroy and that's the lesson, I think, here, Lord. And I pray that we would look into our lives and find those small things. Many of us Christians probably are not going to run out and commit adultery tonight or do something terrible, the big list. But we probably have some small, nagging sins that need to be destroyed. So help us identify those. Make sure that we put the sword to them. Put the word of God to them. Remove them. So that they do not grow up and divide us from the truth. Lord, I pray you'd help us. I do pray for those who have lost loved ones. Even little ones. I thank you for those who remain examples to the church when you allow difficult things to come into their life. I pray, Lord, you would encourage them. You would help them know that you asked them to do something that you have not asked a lot of people to do. And I pray, Lord, you would strengthen them in a way that they know that that's you, nobody else. And Lord, as they answer questions and have opportunities to share what you've done in their life, may they be able to give you complete credit. And so I pray for them, Lord. Lord, I pray for us that we don't know what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow or how long, how much life we have. But we pray that our love of you, our understanding of you, our knowledge of you 
would be based in biblical truth through the love of Christ and the love of our Father so that when things come along that are difficult to handle, we can be unshaken. We can stand even in difficult times on that truth. So Lord, basically it comes down to our view of you, how we handle difficult things. And I pray that we would be men and women, boys and girls, who are biblicists, devoted to the word of God, devoted to Christ and the gospel. And Lord, we will, by your grace, be able to weather the things you send our way. And we'll do it glorifying you. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.